Well, it's great to be here with uh, all of you, our brothers and sisters here on the west side. Um, do want to uh, just really commend the group uh, for your participation in our special missions contribution, being able to make that happen for Central America, Mexico, as well as the Middle East. And uh, I do want to commend the, uh, our audio tech people and the worship team. They had some challenges coming in this morning. You'd never know it based on the way things have been going so far. And guys, just want to thank you for all the time and energy that goes into before and after the scenes. <clears throat> With that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and uh, bow our heads and go to the Father in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for what an amazing God you are. And as John referenced, uh, coming out of Ephesians 1, uh, what you've given us, what you've blessed us with, what you've lavished us with, the riches that we have through Christ are absolutely amazing. They're totally undeserved. And I know for me personally, it just makes me want to do so much more for you, God, because of the way you've taken care of me, my family, my friends, uh, and our churches internationally. Do you want to offer up a special prayer right now for Maribel Redwood, her uh, back, uh, that you take care of the situation there, God? Uh, the family, uh, with their loss, please be with them during this time. Uh, I would like to pray for my mother-in-law, Joanne Brown. Thank you, God, for uh, the way things have gone so far. Just help her with recovery. Uh, it's encouraging to know that they got the cancer in its entirety, uh, that there's no, uh, no issues with it at all within her lymphatic system, and uh, now just uh, help her to recover quickly so we can get her home. Uh, also, God, for the way that you answer prayers with the, the Newsbaum family, uh, the incredible victory there with their son. Uh, God, we, we are so grateful for the way that you guide our lives, the direction that we have, the encouragement we have with your word, but most importantly, uh, the way that you served us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to uh, thank Jarrell, too, for communion today. It's kind of a, a good way of segueing into the sermon this morning, and that what he referenced in Romans 8, uh, ultimately in that we are free from the law of sin and death. And with that, this morning, what we're going to be taking a look at, the title of the message is Selfless, but how loving ourselves less and loving God and each other more has the ability to change the world. You know, before we uh, totally get started here, i got a couple things I'd like to get off my chest this morning. A um, few of you got kids, right? How, how do you feel when somebody messes with your kids? I, I don't think there's anything more that can tick me off than when someone does something that's offensive to either one of my children. Uh, looking back to Shailene when she was in elementary school, she came home crying one day from school and you know, we finally got her to sit down and work through emotions and express this. And she was, like, embarrassed. She was uptight about talking about what even happened. And there was this young man that whenever she'd wear a skirt, he'd make a point of going up behind her and flipping up her skirt. So, uh, you know, I gave her some things to say, and that didn't go too well. So I decided I'd show up after school and wait for her to point him out, which maybe wasn't the best way of handling things. But let's just say that he did decide to leave her alone after that. There was another situation when we were uh, in Orange County in Yorba Linda where uh, my son was on a Little League team there. We had just moved in. I hadn't even had an opportunity to go out to his first couple of practices. But right out of the chute, there was a young man there that was bullying him. And he got in physical with him on a couple of instances and was very abusive with his language. So, yeah, I let Stephen know, uh, okay, I'm going to be going with you to practice today. Is this guy's dad there? He's, oh, yeah, his dad's the coach. 
Okay, uh, this may prove to be interesting. So Stephen points him out to me, and it turns out, I don't know how many of you know the sports newscaster Jim Hill, but it was his brother, except he's the larger version of his brother. And uh, so I walk over and I introduce myself to him, and he stands up, and he's about 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, kind of towering over me. And uh, I, I reached out to shake his hand, and mine disappeared. I, I've got pretty big hands, but, I mean, literally... He reached out, and it was like, where'd my hand go? He just totally engulfed it in his. And I started to express to him my concerns, and he started to get very agitated with me, and it looked like this was going to go south very quickly. Um, I was able to, you know, continue to talk. He finally dialed in the emotions, and uh, needless to say, his son quit bothering my son. But I don't like it when somebody messes with my kids. So I feel a lot better now, having gotten that off my... uh, just kind of getting that on out there, just thinking through this. Um, it's amazing how it's just really um, ugly kids can sometimes be with one another. Uh, backstabbing, you know, I, I, we've had kids over the house. I think some of my biggest issues were with preteens and teenagers. You know, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. They'll play one thing to your face and totally something else to your kids behind your back. But uh, the thing that's really key for me is there's no point talking to me or Forming, trying to come after, making any form of peace with me, being nice to me, unless you're nice to my kids. It's, it, it, there's no means of compensating me if you've messed with my kids or my dogs now. You know, we're empty nesters, so we've got a couple of chihuahuas at home. But the best thing you can do for me has nothing to do with me. The most honoring thing that you can do for me is honor and respect my kids. You know, I look back through the years, my son Stephen had a learning disability. And there was a teacher in fifth grade, a Mr. Valone, that really took an interest in him and went after really, t- with that interest, helping him get through his uh, classwork. He had an audiovisual processing disorder. And this guy wasn't concerned with the quantitative aspect of what Stephen did so much as how well he did the work that he had. And it really helped Stephen a ton with his self-esteem. Uh, there was another woman in, in high school, uh, his R, RSP, the woman in uh, the RSP program that he was part of, MJ Miller, another one who just loved my kid. And it was amazing the transition he made with some of the challenges he had by people taking that interest and really loving him. Uh, my daughter Shailene coming into South Bay, uh, you know, within Coastal, uh, Elaine Johnson, Karina Wingy, these are some women that have had an incredible impact on my daughter. And, uh, witnessing Victoria's restoration today, hearing about Danny today, I know it's only a matter of time until my daughter Shailene comes back to the faith as well. But it's because of that love, people being more concerned with others than they are with themselves that makes that kind of a difference. So with that this morning, we're going to take a look at the temple model versus the Jesus model. And how we can sometimes get caught up in the, the legalism of religion and really lose sight of what God tried to establish for us. I'm going to start with a little bit of history on religion, where worship and how worship affects our lives and our conduct. And so today Christianity has a lot of influences that has taken place through the years, and ultimately a lot of it ties within our consciousness, you know, as Christians, things that we can feel guilty about, things we should do and we don't do, things we do but we shouldn't do. And these things have been shaped and formed by a variety of things, but primarily a version of Christianity that is merged with this temple model, which has absolutely nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. It's an ancient model that was influenced by the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Jews, and today we can still be influenced 
by that temple model. The temple model consists of a place that's sacred. Uh, we, we see this influence, and I'll talk about that in a little bit more uh, when we look at Christianity being legalized uh, via the Romans. But with that sacred place, there are sacred texts that really no one can interpret, but sacred men that have the ability to read it or have the accessibility to it, and they kind of put it on out there for everybody else as to what they need to do. And usually there's a group of sincere followers that are involved. Now, around the 4th century... Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, and when that happened, something tragic happened. In the 4th century, this is where, for Christianity, the temple model really began to come out, to emerge into society. And it was Christianity that was, in some ways, tragically reinforced by the Reformation that day. I've got a quote for you. It states, The place of worship replaced both the significance of the worshipers and the love we were called to for one another. The church was replaced with the love of a building, the church. And you'll you'll notice the the significance there. The church, obviously us, uppercase versus the church, lowercase, the building. You know, I've always wanted to see this. This is a quote from me. But uh, anyway, (laughs) I never said I was humble, okay? I just want to establish that right out of the chute. But, you know, it's it's amazing what has taken place with Christianity because of this model. And basically, Constantine appointed his mother, Helena, as the Augusta Imperatrix, which it gave her influence and access to the imperial treasury. And with that, you can kind of see it throughout the Middle East today, through different parts of Europe. It was amazing the monuments that she built to... Uh, basically established, okay, here's where this guy died, or here's where this person was buried. I mean, you have the Holy Sepulcher in uh, Jerusalem. All these just lavish buildings, gold, ivory, uh, all kinds of mosaics, just incredible structures of architecture. And all of a sudden, there's this shift. Again, the the building became way more important then who we are as the church, the individual, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I agree with Jarrell when it comes to communion. I mean, you go back to the first century, they didn't get together for sermons, they got together for communion. It was about commemorating Christ. That was their focus. And this focus started to deteriorate after the introduction of all these incredible buildings. You have creeds and sacraments, in a lot of ways, empty traditions that replace what was taking place in the first, second, and third century of the church. Now, the Jesus model... You have a new covenant, a new command, a new ethic, a new movement, new integrity. And the Jesus model was revolutionary. This wasn't just a version of what the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and everyone had done prior to him. No, this was, a, this was about being selfless. Not about self, but being selfless. A new covenant, a brand new approach to relationship between man and God. A new command that superseded all the other commands. And this command needs to be the thing that we filter our own actions through. This new ethic, this new movement, this new integrity. And then the challenge that we can be faced with today is that blending of the old and new. And that blending of the old and new can hold us back individually and holds the church back when it comes to its effectiveness internationally. And here's some examples for you this morning. If you feel guiltier about missing church than you do about mistreating someone at work, that's the temple model. 
being somewhere spiritual or sacred is much more important to you than how you treat someone. And one of the standouts for me, and I, I think it was something that actually contributed to me becoming agnostic. You know, I was raised in a major denominational church. All the way through my confirmation, at the age of 13, my folks said to me, you're old enough to figure this out on your own, and I'm all fine, I'm out, I'm done. And a lot of it had to do with, and it's concerning to me as a 13-year-old, just the level of hypocrisy I saw at that young an age in the church. I remember being, we were in an overfull parking lot because we were at one of these ginormous buildings that everybody in town went to, and my dad inadvertently cut a guy off, we were driving through the volleyball courts of this church, and the guy next to him starts cussing at him, and he flips, and he flips my dad off. And I'm thinking, okay, where, where are we? I mean, I know we're not in the building anymore, but we're still on the, the church property. And initially, just, you know, I was about 9 or 10 years old at the time. I'm thinking, what is up with this guy? All, all this pent-up anger. I mean, didn't we just come from church? So, you know, that, that again is the temple model. We can get caught up in... Uh, you know, saying a magic prayer, reciting over and over again prayers for penance, or going to confession to have our sins forgiven, rather than just making restitution or apologizing and asking forgiveness of whoever the individual is that we hurt. So the, the temple model is all about you. It's all about me personally, with absolutely zero concern for those around us. Temple model is you-centered. What must I do to make things right between God and me? Me-centered, self-centered. Versus God-centered. You know, church attendance can be something that is about me. You know, God, you see me here worshiping with you here today on Sunday? I mean, isn't it awesome, God? I'm here. Forget about what happened Friday night. You know, the being out partying, the sexual morality, the drugs, or whatever else that may take place that doesn't fall within the Jesus model. But God, I'm here! This is the only thing you need to know, God. I'm here worshiping you. Temple model versus the Jesus model. You know, that, the obedience factor, again, that's all about me. The do's and don'ts, all about me. What I did or didn't do wrong, all about me. You know, why we, we give our financial offerings can be all about me. You know, we can get caught up in how much more we think we may provide financially for the church than the next guy or our particular life situation, the degrees that we have, all those things become way more important than Jesus. Look at me, God. Look what I gave you. And this was Constantine's approach. And our approach about religion can be every bit as self-centered. Temple model, not Jesus. Temple thinking gravitates to the rules and regulations and rituals. What exactly must I do to make things and keep things right between God and myself? And we've got to get beyond the what is in it for me mentality and how to keep God happy with me. Because Jesus teaches New Testament followers that once you place your faith in Jesus and make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, God is okay with you. And you are okay with God. You enter the waters of baptism, your sins were forgiven. There's no other mediation that needs to take place. And, you know, these were some of the things that turned me off in my early 20s. Again, from the age of 13 to 32, I was agnostic. And I remember being invited to church on multiple occasions and thinking about the individuals that invited me. And I was by no means a saint, but I didn't claim to be a Christian. And looking at the language that was being used, the things that were being talked about, the crude joking, what this guy's going to do to that girl, all these different things. And in one instance, even being invited to church by a young lady 
I don't know what it is, but during that period of time, I guess the, the, church, the church thing was something that people thought if they could get you to church, they could get you to the altar. But I, I remember being invited out and uh, being pressured into doing this altar call. I mean, the guy would not leave me alone. I peaked. I shouldn't have. You know, they asked people to, look, to close their eyes and look down, and then they made this appeal, you know, who wants to get to know Jesus better? Who wants to get to know the Bible better? This, that, the other, and, you know, I'm kind of like this, and a number of people raised their hands, and I got an elbow, so I raised my hand. And the guy wouldn't stop until I came forward and said that prayer. You know, needless to say, my life didn't change. And right after church, this young lady wanted me back over at her house. That's the temple model. It's not the Jesus model. The Jesus model is centered on the you beside you. If you're a Republican, you know, we know things are heating up right now. It's more about the you next to you, which may be that Democrat. If you're a racist... It's about the individual next to you, regardless what the race is, regardless what the religion is, regardless what their background is. If it's about Jesus, then it's about that love that we're supposed to have for the person to the right and to our left. Following Jesus is a calling to leave what is all about you and focus on the you next to you. John 13, 34, we're all very familiar with the passage. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this. By nothing else, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus establishes this time and time again through his ministry. In the book of Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, and I love this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then we, we see Paul talking about this in Galatians 5, verse 14. Paul says, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Now, mind you, this is the attorney guy for the law. He was a Pharisee. He protected it. He knew it. He could cite verbatim, and he could tell you exactly how he upheld all 634 uh, commandments and all the other stuff, purity rights and everything else that the Jews had incorporated into having a right relationship with God. He says, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Complete departure from temple thinking. All 634 commandments and regulations that the religious leaders like Paul came up with and held people accountable to, right here he states, love your neighbor as yourself. That upholds them all. Selfless thinking. You know, let's take a look at some shell knots. Do you know why you should tell the truth? Do we? It's in the Bible, right? It's commandment because God says so. Well, if that's the answer, you're wrong even though you're right. See, temple thinking says you need to tell the truth because that's what the text says. The Jesus model says you should tell the truth because when you don't tell the truth, you hurt the person you lie to. And ultimately what that does is it hurts you and it hurts your relationship with God. We know it goes right back to the beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve. What did Satan do? The deceiver. And what did that do to their relationship with God? They were cast out of the garden. Because they didn't adhere to what God had established. But it was the relationship that God was concerned with. It wasn't about the do's or the don'ts. 
See, when you lie, you're saying to the person that you're lying to, you know what, you're not worthy of the truth. When you lie, what you're saying is, what's best for you is secondary to what's best for me. And the reason Christians shouldn't lie isn't because it says so in the book. The reason the Bible says we shouldn't lie is because God is concerned more about other people than he is about you individually and what you're going to be tempted with and how you're going to engage those people. The temple model says, I'll tell the truth so that God will love me. Jesus says the reason you'll tell the truth is because you love people the way Jesus loved people. Compelled by Christ's love, compelled by his selfless love for us. How about some shall nots? You know why we shouldn't talk badly about someone? Probably not going to be uh, quite as quick to even think about a response to this one based on the last one, right? Doesn't the Bible say something about gossip or malice or anger? Shouldn't gossip because the Bible says you shouldn't gossip, right? God doesn't like it. No, again, that's the temple model. You shouldn't gossip because it hurts someone. It undermines their integrity to other people. The reason we shouldn't gossip is because you elevate yourself at the expense of someone else. And you can't love yourself as your neighbor if you lie or gossip about your neighbor. We got some teens and campus students in the mix this morning, right? Where are we at, teens? <laughs> There's a few of you, but I could hear you. That was awesome. Campus students, we're in the mix. A few more of you, almost as zealous. Young men, young women, do you know why you shouldn't pressure your boyfriend or your girlfriend into sexual relationships? And again, you know, well, yeah, that's an easy one, Steve, because the Bible says so. You know, if you do bad things morally, there can be consequences, bad things will happen. You know, thinking this through, I mean, just as Christians, shouldn't dating just in and of itself just be about encouraging one another? Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, for those of you that are doing it right, I want to encourage you this morning. See, the reason you shouldn't pressure someone into doing something they don't want to do, though, is when you pressure them into doing something they don't want, you create a regret for them. Jesus' followers, true disciples of Jesus Christ, do not create regrets for other people. When someone tells the story of the greatest regret that they have, do you think they're thinking about you? See, when they're dealing with an unwanted pregnancy, or maybe the regrets they have for deciding to have that baby but quitting college because they decided to raise the child by themselves, they're not thinking about you. In that moment, when you were thinking about pressuring them sexually, as a true Christian, you realize, you know what? If I'm trying to impose my will on someone else, I don't need a verse for that. That's not loving my neighbor as myself. It's loving myself at the expense of my neighbor. And all these situations is the exact opposite of how we as Christians are called to live. I need to be honest about this one. I do want to, this is rhetorical. I want you to raise your hand if it applies. How many of you have done at least one thing you regret because of being pressured by someone else? Keep them up. Keep them up. Take a look around. And that's what ails the world today. Regrets because of other people, because of pressure, because of the temple model versus the Jesus model. Now, here's a good one. What if, for whatever reason, what you decided to do... Is consensual. Say you've got a niece or a nephew and they come to you and they say, you know what, I got this fork, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke out my brother's eye. And we, we agree to this. It's consensual. What would your response be? I mean, they, they've agreed to it. They're cool with it. You're going to engage, right? No, no, no you don't. What, what are we, you're going to hurt someone else. What are you thinking? Do we really need a Bible verse to explain to them why they shouldn't do something that's going to create regret in someone else's life? Which will eventually create a regret in your own life. Do we really need Bible verses to speak to every specific thing that goes on in our life when it comes to other people? Do we really need to go any deeper than love your neighbor as yourself? This is the bottom line. God didn't give us verses for everything. The New Testament imperatives are examples of how to demonstrate your love for God by loving others. And God gives us this example. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All law, the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything in the New Testament and the Old Testament See if this comes up here. There we go. There's all the books in all the books in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And for those of you that like Breaking Bad or are into chemistry, there's the uh, there there the, the uh, periodic table broken down for you on all the books of the Bible. I don't know about you. I look at either one of those. It kind of stresses me out just a little bit. Just a little bit. There's a little bit in there. There's a lot in there. Do I want to be held accountable for all that? Heck no! And that's what I love about Jesus. That's what I love about Paul. It's so simple. If we get rid of self and our selfless and start thinking about the person to our right and our left before ourselves. I mean, this is simply an illustration of what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and what Paul said in Galatians. Everything right there on that screen is summed up very simply, very simply, by the need to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And as Paul cited, as what Jesus stated here, everything there hangs on those two commands. I can remember those two commands. I've got that passage memorized. I can't say that about the Bible. And I love the fact that this is what Jesus ushered in with his death. What, we t- what Jarrell talked about in Romans, this, having this, this law be something that we need to be informed, we need to know. And more than anything, we think about sin. It's important to know what Jesus died for. But we need to be able to grab hold of, at that same time, the grace, mercy, and love that's been lavished on us through that death of Christ because of our sin. But getting away from all the rules and regulations, because usually when we have rules and regulations, what do we do with them? Do we not apply them to other people? But how well do we actually apply them to ourselves? I need everyone's eyes up here for just a minute. If any of you are shopping on Amazon.com right now on your smartphone, pretending you're reading your Bible, go ahead and put that down for a second. Go ahead and look up here at the screen. And on that note, too, I'm telling you, being in the Middle East, it really is sobering how well we have it here in the States. I mean, just simple things that you would never even think of. I tried to download a commentary while I was in Egypt. 
And it came back that this particular site is not something that's accessible when it comes to this form of religious material. So I decided I'll try a few more Christian topics and that kind of thing. Anything along those lines, I could not even access. You can't download a Bible in Egypt. Anything they have in the way of books are smuggled into the country. I mean, just the little things that we can take for granted. I everybody's attention. The Jesus model is less complicated, but it is far more demanding. Again, the Jesus model is less complicated, but it is far more demanding. You know, in a lot of ways, aren't do's and don'ts easier? I don't know about you. I'm just going to be honest. Isn't it sometimes hard loving other people? People are myself. People are myself. Hmm. (laughs) Especially when things maybe aren't going well with people. Don't ever forget this. At the center of the Christian faith is a man that those who were closest to believed was the Son of God. At the center of the Christian faith is a man that those that knew him best believed he came from God. At the center of the Christian faith was a man who died covered with his own blood and the saliva of others. See, the Jesus model is far less complicated but far more demanding. See, it's easy to find a place in a temple to hide. You know, well, I, I don't really think that's what the passage means. Or, well, you know, that's, that's in the Old Testament. Or, you know, well, well Jesus kind of said one thing, Paul said something else, James said something else entirely different. Well, you know, that, that situation you're talking about, bro or sis, that's not specifically mentioned in the Scriptures. See, temple religion makes it really easy to find a way out. Temple Christianity is such a turnoff for non-Christians. You know, people are one way on Sunday. They're good for that hour and a half, whatever it is. And then they're totally different the rest of the week. Hypocrites. That's why people don't want anything to do with Christianity. But in true discipleship, in true Christianity, it's hard to find a way out. Because we have the example of Christ and His calling. Amen. You know, this is, uh, for those of you that know Gandhi, this is sobering to think what this guy could have done for Christianity if he'd become a Christian. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike Christ. This was rooted in the fact that he had been invited out to a Christian church. He got to the door and he was turned away because of his color. sobering. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2, verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset and attitude as Christ Jesus. And for those of us familiar with the passage, we know what's talked about. The need to serve others, the, the need to look to others, that concern for others before yourself. You know, if we did that, do you think we'd have divorce? Why divorce? Because of self. We get more concerned about ourselves, our feelings, rather than thinking through what the other individual is going through and whether or not we're willing to engage them on that level. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? I mean, I look at Jesus before, the day before he went to the cross, his guys knew he was going to be betrayed, but they didn't know who the betrayer was. 
That's because Jesus treated everyone the way he would have liked to have been treated. He wasn't concerned with making a big deal out of the fact that Judas was going to be the guy. He washed Judas' feet just like he washed everyone else. I could not even begin to imagine for a minute what must have been going through Judas' feet, Judas' head, (laughs) his feet too. But think about that. What must have been going through Judas' mind as Jesus knelt before him and lifted his feet and cleaned the grime off his feet, knowing that those same feet were going to take him to the religious leaders of the day and betray him for 30 silver coins. This is why the Christian faith is so spectacular. Because in following Jesus, there is no place to hide. There are no excuses. There are no shortcuts. Because, let's be honest for a moment, in almost any situation we're involved with, intuitively, don't we know what's right or wrong? Don't we know what Jesus would do? And this is it. This is... This is the challenge. What does being selfless require of me? Love God, love others. See, love offers us no place to hide. There aren't any shortcuts. What does love require of you at home, in the workplace, in the classroom, in your neighborhood, at the grocery store, on the 405 when you're sitting there in traffic and it's not going anywhere? What does love require? We almost always know the answer to that question. The hard part is actually doing what love requires. So again, what does love require of me? So this is the essence of following Jesus. What's necessary to follow Jesus. And again, if you think this is simple, you think it's easy, you think it's watered down, think again because it's not. Because when our, our Father in Heaven had to answer this question, our Heavenly Father answered this question, it cost Him His Son. When our Savior, Jesus Christ, answered the question, it cost him his life. And then he said to you and me, follow me. When our Savior answered the question, he knew what the answer was going to be for him. He knew that there was going to even be a period of time as he took on our sins, he was going to be separated from God, but he was willing to do that. So this part is really simple. So we need to answer the question, what does love require from me. Can you imagine what it would look like in our families? Can you imagine what they would look like if we ran everything through the filter of what does being selfless, what does love require of me? Can you imagine what our neighborhoods would look like, our cities, our country would look like if we ran everything through the filter of what does love require for me? What if all the Christians, just for a month, paused and we ran everything through that filter of what does being selfless What does love require of me? You know, in the first century, they didn't have a New Testament. They just had oral scraps that were handed down. And this fascinates me. There was no structure. There was no Bible. You had slave owners and slaves, rich and poor, children being pulled in off the streets and taken care of. And they all remembered there was just one thread that held them together. They remembered what Jesus had said. If you forget everything else, just love one another. Imagine a world that's critical of us for our stance, and it's getting more and more critical each and every day. But imagine a world that was critical of us for what we believed, but envious of us because of how we treated one another and the people outside our circle of believers. That's why Christianity survived. 
Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. And I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The essence of following Jesus isn't about you. It's what we just read in verse 38 and 39. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? It's your devotion to God is illustrated and demonstrated and authenticated by your love for others, period. Now, did I mention at the beginning that the best way to honor me has nothing to do with me? Did I mention that whatever you do for one of my children is like doing it for me? No point talking to me, no point trying to make peace with me or be nice to me. The means of compensating me is if you mess with my kids is to get in there and go after it. Not make excuses, but handle things the way Jesus would. The best thing you can do for me has nothing to do with me. If you love my kids, you love me. It's that simple. Whatever you do for one of these is like you're doing it for me. And that's exactly how your God in heaven feels. Any time you're more concerned with you to your left or your right, more so than yourself, because when he looks down... He sees his son, Jesus Christ. See, the good news we celebrate this morning is that Jesus gives us the power we need to let go of a life looking for excuses and to choose a new life that is linked to Jesus' selfless love. We just need to be willing to take the words that were spoken in the Bible at face value. What does selfless love require of me? It's not going to be easy. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Love God, love your neighbor. I know it's not easy, and it won't solve all of our problems, but a life being, that is linked to being selfless is a thousand times better than a life that is spent looking for loopholes or hiding in temples. So I want to encourage you to take the one-week challenge this week. Try this for just one week. Start every morning asking yourself this simple question. What does selfless love require of me? What, be, what would it be like if I treated them, and you fill in the blank with whoever the them is, spouse, child, co-worker, neighbor, whatever the case may be, but what would it be like if I treated them the way I would like for them to treat me? If you're visiting with us, if you're here for the first time or the tenth time, you need some help with the workplace, your marriage, your kids, your friends, with God, Join us in one of our small groups, and we can help you use this Jesus filter that we're talking about this morning. What does love require of me? Waking up every day, praising God for the most incredible gift that he gave us, 
through his son Jesus Christ, and we will change our cities. We will change our communities. We will change the world. God bless.